to Cultural Technologies. I'm Bernard Dionysus Gagan. Today is another bootleg episode, and it's a little bit of our speculative, accelerated extravaganza. Uh, we have actually a remix of two different uh, events brought together. The first event is a conversation among Stephen Shaviro and Alexander Galloway on their recently released books. Uh, Shaviro's is called The Universe of Things on Speculative Realism. Galloway's is called Larwell Against the Digital. Both of these were released by the University of Minnesota Press, so they got together in November 2014 at the New School to talk about their books, to talk about uh, speculative realism, accelerationism, uh, Graham Harmon, and uh, Francois Larwell, and why he isn't a a speculative realist, apparently. so it's a great, great chat among two really uh, smart, interesting, stimulating guys. So I hope you enjoy that. Um, that conversation, I should say, or I should mention, is moderated by Eugene Thacker and introduced by Dominic Petman, who are also of that fine institution known as the New School. And when this conversation is done, uh, there is a second uh, snippet of a conversation I've dropped in. It's maybe... Five minutes or so of Stephen Shaviro speaking in June 2014 at Proku M, a great bookstore here in Berlin, uh, where he discusses uh, his forthcoming book project on the topic of accelerationism. So I hope you enjoy this episode, and I'll be back in a few weeks or so with another episode. This one, not a uh, recording, but actually a real live recorded conversation. So, um, the format is reasonably loose. Uh, Eugene's going to moderate soon. Uh, but I would like to welcome the main uh, two because we are here to celebrate their new books. Um, so first, uh, Steve Shaviro, who for as long as I can remember has been uh, one of the essential guides to the zeitgeist and, uh, or what hasn't quite yet become the zeitgeist, uh, and his new book, The Universe of Things, about, um, what's the subtitle? Speculative Realism on Speculative Realism. And uh, Alex Galloway, well, I should say the official stuff. Steve Shaviro is the Roy Professor of Wayne State University, Detroit. And uh, Alex Galloway, as you also all know, is a Professor of Media, Culture, and Communication down the road at NYU. <laughs> uh, and whose uh, new book on Lara Well Against the Digital we're also celebrating today. So if you haven't bought, bought your copy and got it signed yet, I'm sure there'll be a chance afterwards. Um, happily enough, by sheer synchronicity, Carrie Wolf is also here. Um, and Carrie Wolf is the, <laughs> there he is, <laughs> uh, edits this series, curates the Post-Humanity series, which of course is uh, one of the greatest series of all time because <laughs> my book is also in there, and just as a, by sheer coincidence. And um, But actually, it's amazing to have everyone here in this room and some of the faces I'm seeing out here. I I wish I could play the Nero card and just close the exits 
and not let you leave for a week and we could have an epoch-defining conference. <laughs> but some of you might get upset. Now with Seamless and things, we, it could work. <laughs> but that's enough of me. Now to uh, Eugene. We're still waiting on Glenn, Glenn Beck. Is he going to come? <laughs> Cheesy joke. <jokes. laughs> So, uh, Eugene Thacker, thanks to everyone for being here. Uh, hi, everybody. Welcome. Um, I'm not going to say too much by way of, of intro because I, I think we want to hear Steve and, and Alex <coughs> uh, talk about their books uh, and, and various other things. Uh, I just wanted to... Um, run over some of each of their publications because I think too frequently we just jump to the brand new book that's come out. But um, uh, I think it's interesting, and hopefully we can get to this in the discussion, the sort of trajectory that each of them uh, has gone on, not necessarily uh, in a linear way, but the different sort of paths that they've, uh, that they've created. Um, uh, and then I'll add a personal note at the end, which won't be confessional or embarrassing, but <laughs> personal. Uh, Alex's first book, and uh, again, many of this you might already know if you've read them, uh, is called Protocol, How Control Exists After Decentralization. This was way back in 2004, uh, MIT Press. Uh, and actually, I was looking at it again uh, this morning and thinking there's, there's an interesting dialogue between his, Alex's first book and his most recent book. Um, he's also the author of a book called Gaming, Essays in Algorithmic Culture. It was published in uh, 2006. And um, more recently, The Interface Effect that Polity published in, in 2012. Um, Alex has also been involved on a number of collaborative writing projects. And I think this is also interesting, the idea of sort of collaborative uh, scholarship, which certainly happens a lot of in, in other types of, of writing, but maybe not so much in terms of philosophy and, and theory. In uh, 2007, Alex and I co-wrote a book called The Exploit, uh, Theory of Networks, uh, in which we employed um, sort of surrealist techniques of just cycling back text until we forgot who wrote what part. And so it actually was a very sort of tight collaboration. Um, and then, as, as Dominic mentioned, uh, Alex, Ken, and I um, co-wrote this sort of uh, assemblage of a book called Excommunication that is the result of sort of many years of formal and informal conversations uh, between us. So that was also an interesting experience. <coughs> Those of you that are in New York might remember a few years ago, I think in, in 2010 maybe, um, Alex organized a series of seminars in the public school of New York called French Theory Today. And um, I believe the audio for that's still available and, and there were some special edition print um, books that were created um, from that. And that book was actually then translated into French um, with the title uh, Les, Nouveau, Les Nouveaux Realistes, I think. Um, so Alex, um, in addition to his teaching and his writing, has been very interested in sort of the permutations of, of French theory. Uh, Alex has also been active as a media artist, and I don't know if he'd say programmer, but uh, his work with RSG, the Radical Software Group, um, might be familiar to people, uh, especially their development of the, the computer version of Guy Debord's Kriegspiel, his, his war game, uh, among various other projects. Um, uh, and as Dominic mentioned, uh, Alex's book, La Ruelle, uh, Against the Digital, uh, just came out this month, I believe, so it's brand new. 
uh, Alex gave me uh, one of a sort of print-on-demand draft copy, which is something that we sometimes do. And it was originally to make notes, I think, to give you feedback. But you I ended up drew just pictures on all the pages. Yeah, I just was sort of like drawing different pictures on it. So um, those it, modifications did not make their way into his final book. Um, I was teasing Steve a little bit because uh, when I was an undergrad at the University of Washington, which is when I first met Steve, um, I had his first book uh, permanently checked out from the library, uh, and it's called Passion and Excess, Blanchot, Bataille, and Literary Theory, 1990. Um, and I somehow lost it, or somebody borrowed it and never gave it back, but I recently found it again, amazingly, at the Strand, and uh, was going back through it and really sort of uh, enjoying it, especially because uh, at the time I was doing a, a seminar on Bataille, so... I uh, was kind of enjoying looking at that again. When Steve's book, uh, The Cinematic Body, came out in 1993, uh, I think it was also sort of a watershed moment for, um, for cinema studies and for theory generally because a lot of it was dominated um, sort of by uh, psychoanalysis and particular ways of looking at film. Uh, and, and that book, which was published in the Minnesota Theory Out of Bounds series, was one of the few books at the time that was incorporating uh, Bataille Deleuze and other thinkers into looking at everything from slapstick to, to horror film. And so that was a really big, uh, uh, an interesting moment. The book that a lot of people are familiar with is, is Doom Patrols from 1997, uh, which is subtitled A Theoretical Fiction About Postmodernism. Uh, and this is something that maybe, uh, you know, Steve can talk about later on, but his uh, experiment with style in all of his different books I find uh, really intriguing and engaging and working across different platforms uh, as well. Steve's book, Connected, or What It Means to Live in the Network Society, is from uh, 2003, and there's an interesting dialogue, I think, between uh, Connected and uh, The Exploit. And Without Criteria, Kant, Whitehead, Deleuze, uh, and Aesthetics from 2009, um, which is probably one of Steve's major sort of straight-up uh, philosophy books, philosophical contributions. Uh, and then a shorter but equally interesting book, Post-Cinematic Affect, which is published by Zero uh, in 2010, um, continues Steve's engagement with uh, film uh, and cinema and cinema studies. Probably most people, though, know Steve's writing through his blog, The Pinocchio Theory, um, which is continuously uh, inventive and always has uh, some interesting things on it and also is experimenting with the form uh, in new ways. And as, as Dom said, his latest book, The Universe of Things on Speculative Realism, uh, came out this past year. And both these books are part of the uh, Minnesota Post-Humanities series. Uh, the two personal notes I'll add is that Alex and I knew each other originally when we were both grad students. And uh, we were working on media art projects when we should have been writing our dissertations. But um, I think that moment when there wasn't really a media studies degree you could get or, or the field really wasn't sort of defined. Um, and um, it was an interesting moment, I think, be not only in terms of thinking about theory uh, and practice, but also thinking about a field that is not yet defined and sort of the things you can do uh, in that space of, of in, in definition sort of. Uh, and, and Steve ended up being the outside reader on my dissertation, although uh, I remember when 
we were talking uh, at the University of Washington in Seattle, and he advised me uh, if I wanted to study philosophy to avoid the philosophy department there. <laughs> so here I am. Um, so I thought what I would do is invite uh, Steve and Alex to um, say anything that they wanted to say by way of preliminary remarks. Uh, and then we can just sort of take it from there and see how it goes. So uh, please join me in welcoming Steve and Alex. Okay. Um, okay. So I actually, I'm not a philosopher at all. I, I teach cinema studies at, the, at Wayne State University, um, and I write about film and new media though I've sort of gotten become a slacker in the new media stuff. I just can't keep up with everything. Um, so, but I, I seem to have be juggling all these. It's actually really weird because I go to these different conferences and see at each conference I have a whole group of people I know, but they're all on different subjects. And sometimes I feel I have to, so I've worked, though I'm not a philosopher, I've worked in philosophy on, first on Deleuze and then on Whitehead, and now in social realism. As cinema scholar, I'm really working on contemporary contemporary mutations in digital cinema. And I did not so much new media, but how new media technologies and new digital technologies affect both commercial filmmaking and increasingly music videos, which is, so that's one thing I work on. The second thing I work on is science fiction, which I mostly mean science fiction novels rather than science fiction films. Um, connected or what it means to live in network society, which I still think is my best book is was about science fiction, or it was, it was engaging theories, of, you know, things about cyberculture and the internet through a close reading of K.W. Jeter's novel Noir, which I still think is one of the best American science fiction novels. Um, I'm right now in the middle of a book about theories of consciousness and cognition as they are reflected in science fiction. The third thing I seem to write about is, um, well, so I said cinema, I said science fiction. The third thing is this kind of philosophy stuff. And I started out as a kind of Deleuzean, basically. Um, through Because of Isabel Stenger's, I started reading and writing about Whitehead. Stenger's book from 2001 in France, though not translated into English until 2010 or 2011, it, Thinking with Whitehead is, I think, a crucial text for me. Um, as I was finishing the Whitehead book, which was published in 2009, I started you know, through the blogosphere, basically, okay. Reading all this stuff about reading all this stuff about speculative realism, and I guess I got seduced or something. So, in the background, which many of you may know, is there was a conference at Goldsmiths in London in 2007 called Speculative Realism. It united four philosophers who are very different in their positive philosophies, but who had maybe certain polemical points in common. One Frenchman, they're all men. One Frenchman, Kenton Mayasu who's a student of Alan Badiou. Um, one American, Graham Harmon, whose background is phenomenology and teaches now at American University in Cairo, and two British thinkers, Ian Hamilton Grant and Ray Brassier, both of whom were students of Nick Land at Warwick in the 1990s and are and now, and Grant is at University of West of England and Brassier is at um, American University of Beirut. But anyway, they're, they're common theme was speculative realism, I'll just say, it's a term which has been much contested. I mean, this philosophy in the last seven years has developed all in the blogosphere, which leads to the usual kind of horrible things which happen in the blogosphere 
on any topic whatsoever. It's maybe not as quite, I mean, there's been a lot of horrible polemics, you know, and I feel myself joining them. It's probably not as bad as what's happened in the blogosphere on science fiction, which I'd be happy to talk about, which is not relevant for today. But it's still, it's still pretty bad with accusations and people denouncing each other and all kinds of horrible things going on. But actually, there was a lot of interesting discussion which came up <laughs> through this, and a number of the people wrote, I mean, all these four people and others wrote books. So speculative realism I see is, on the one hand, realism is sort of opposed both to phenomenology and to the linguistic turn, so-called, in French or European philosophy of the later 20th century. And that's, so the realism part sort of wants to talk about a reality which exists as extra-linguistic, extra-human frame, exists outside of our phenomenological relation of subject and object or viewer and viewed or whatever. Um, the speculative part is sort of saying that how do we know this if anything we say, so I mean, I guess the project is to be, get a non-anthropocentric frame of reference to understand things in the world. And there are various ways of going about that, and they all involve paradoxes. So the speculative part has to do with the fact that if you want to get to realism, you have to be paradoxical in some way. The paradox, I mean, I, I'll, I'll talk about this more just briefly. The paradoxes go back to Kant and the way Kant made a settlement between contending schools of 18th century philosophy, and his legacy has continued down to this day. So everybody, I think, do, and Kant sort of outlawed many kinds of philosophical speculation. So what I think speculative realism is really about, in my account, is that everybody's going back to Kant and trying to renegotiate Kant's settlement between different schools of philosophy. Anyway, these four philosophers have gone off in very different directions thereafter, and I found them all interesting. I read all their books and blog postings, in the case of those who have blogs, and tried to work through this material, and it really kind of stimulated and excited me, though I, I wasn't sure that I wanted to accept what any of these people were saying. So what, and, uh, but what results from my fascination is that I wrote a, a book of my own which tried to leverage my interest in Alfred North Whitehead to rethink, to give my own basic version of speculative realism, which negotiates between the previously existing speculative realists, but also suggests ways in which Whitehead might be useful to rethinking the issues they're raising. In a certain sense, I'm arguing that Whitehead was already doing this, but it's only because of reading Harman and Brassier and Maya Sue and Grant that I got to the point where I could realize that this was a different angle on Whitehead than I had taken before. So I'm trying to think about what it means to think about reality outside of the anthropocentric frame of reference, given acknowledgement rather than simple ignoring of the, of the paradox that if we're talking about it, we're sort of bringing it into our own terms and therefore into our own frames of reference. And Kant deals with this by saying basically, all we can know about things themselves is that they exist. We can't say anything about them because whenever we talk about them, we're using our own frame of reference. Is there a way around that? I'd like to think there are certain oblique ways around that. Um, I don't find science convincing as a way around that, but I don't find traditional metaphysics convincing either. So there are other, there are other strategies need to be used, and that's basically what my book is about. So I go through readings of the speculative realist, particularly less Grant because he's harder for me to understand, and mostly Harmon. Brassier and Mayasu and their conflicting claims. And I sort of developed my own sort of counter theory of speculative real, of my own version of speculative realism based on Whitehead. And this led me to some weird places where I didn't expect to find myself when I started. I guess one weird place it led me to was called the panpsychism or the thesis that mentality <coughs> is a basic principle, is a basic um, property of all matter. So if you push them hard enough, panpsychists will say that an electron or a neutrino has a certain type of incipient mentality which seems 
totally ridiculous and crazy, but there are reasons why one might want to entertain the hypothesis. I certainly think um, the question of sentience with living things has is is, is, is important, and I, I'm shameless about referring to scientific studies about sort of sentience in plants, bacteria, and slime molds, and so on and so forth. But there's also a metaphysical point um, which has to do with how you think about processes of emergence and how mentality could emerge if it isn't already incipient in matter. And actually analytic philosophers like Yale and Strawson as well as continental philosophers have entertained these kinds of ideas over the last century and it has a long history. There's a guy, David Skirbiner, who wrote a book about the history of panpsychism in the West and he traces, he basically argues that panpsychism from the pre-Socratics tw through the 20th century is a kind of heretical minor strain in in, in Western philosophy, which has never been mainstream accepted, though people as central as Leibniz and Spinoza have at least flirted with it and whited in the 20th century. Anyway, so I started tracing this line and I found it an interesting way to rethink a lot of issues about sentience and intelligence and about the relation of mind and matter, which is of course the big bugaboo of Western culture ever since Descartes and which everybody knows is a bad dualism, but nobody's ever been able to actually get around or, or, or resolve. So I'm trying to look at that. And this also led me to thinking about another thing, which just, I have this, I don't know if it's a talent or if it's a disability, but it's like I often stumble on things and they turn out that they're really fashionable and I'm just you know, part of a trend. And part of me, which is, I mean, I always try to purge the hipster in myself, but part of me always finds out that I'm always doing something which has become you know, fashionable in spite of myself. So obviously somehow my mind is part of some kind of group mind in that way, even though I wish it weren't. So I don't know. I mean, so I came upon this fashionable subject and then in, when I come on other subjects. So that, I mean, the latest thing which is unfashionable I think is plants and plant mentality. Several scientists have published books about plant mentality, but they've also, Michael Martyr, who's a phenomenologist and a deconstructionist, just wrote a book, Plant Thinking, which came out a year ago, which actually Dominic wrote a review of in the Los Angeles Review of Books. And I found that I was also thinking about things like the mentality of plants, and it's, it's, but it's sort of the opposite of, Martyr says that plants are, have consciousness without, in, have intentionality in this phenomenological sense, without consciousness, where I think they have consciousness without intentionality. And so my attempt to think about thought, and I mean basically, what speculative realism is really about is an attack, the whole thing which unites these speculative realists so they diverge in everything else is that they all want to reject correlationism. And correlationism is defined by Kenton Meisu as this idea that, is that the only way you can talk about the world or about ontology or about being is by seeing a correlation between the mind perceiving and the thing perceived. The mind may not be just a human mind, but we have this correlation between the two. That's basically Kant's insistence that we can't know things in themselves. We only can know appearances which are which our own minds are imposing categories upon. This is inherited in mo most philosophy since Kant, including in phenomenology, which is all about the sort of reciprocity between seer and seen, or viewer and viewed, or body embodied subject and object world. And part of the point, the attacking correlation, is to get away from this re reciprocity, to get outside of it, to be able to refer to things somehow apart from this reciprocity between the things and as, as things to be perceived and us as the ones perceiving them. And the question is how do we do that and what is, what's the status of thought in that? One way some people have gone is to say, well, we basically have to get rid of thought in a certain sense. Things are, the object world is just things and they don't necessarily have thought and we shouldn't be imposing our thought upon them. Um, I'm inclined to think that, you know, you can also do that 
an other way. You can have thought is usually thought in terms of phenomenology of intentionality. Every thought is a thought about something. And I'd like to get away from that and think about thought as a material existence in the world which doesn't necessarily have an aboutness or a correlation to anything outside itself. So this might be solipsistic or autistic, but that doesn't, but I'm not sure those terms are really the right terms. So I ended up finding myself thinking first about panpsychism and then about non-phenomenological thought or non-unintentional non-intentional thought or thought which is not reflexive and doesn't have either reflect back on itself or have an object to which it's directed and to think about how that would work. And I'm inclined to think that things like plants and bacteria and my favorite organisms, plasmodial slime molds, in fact exhibit this kind of sentience. But that's an argument which will be both a philosophical one and, and a scientific one in which I'm working on and stuff I'm writing now. But anyway, so I just found myself in some peculiar places just through trying to pursue my interest in the speculative realists and trying to both critique them and get my position in relation to them. And this is also maybe the point of contact with Alex's book, so I'll say that as the last thing before I turn it over to him. So La Francois Laruelle is happening now too, though he's an older generation than the speculative realist, but he's a French thinker who's been around since the 70s or 80s, but who is in his 70s now, but has only recently become prominent, at least in the English-speaking world. Um, he's addressing many of these issues in an extremely radical way. I tried reading Laruel for several years and found him almost incomprehensible. And finally, Alex wrote his book, which I read in manuscript, and which, um, though it's very, very different from the things I was doing, addresses these same issues as speculative realists address, I think, but from a very, very different angle. But nonetheless, through Alex's, I don't want to say explanation so much as radical recreation of Laruel, which I found I had a great affinity with and was very, um, and, and which seemed to me to be a point of contact between what I was trying to do or struggling towards or trying to figure out, which would be a kind of not an imminent, non-reflexive mode of identity or thought. So I'll, from that point I'll say, so the ultimate point um, where my book reaches is sort of where I think Laruel or Alex's Laruel begins and he goes much further out. So I'll turn it over to him. Um, yeah, I think you're secretly a Laruelian, actually. Um, um, well, first I want to thank Dominic for um, actually suggesting this whole event and setting it up. That's a very generous um, um, gesture to, to offer to host it here. And thank you all for coming. Um, yeah, maybe I'll just offer a kind of narrative or a bit of a background um, explaining sort of how I got to write a big, long book about uh, Francois Laruel, um, and also maybe say a little bit about why the, the core kind of um, critical, I don't know, axis in the book is uh, the concept of the digital or digitality, uh, why those things might go together. Um, so, you know, Eugene made reference to um, some of our earlier collaborations, and, I'm, and I was thinking back to the very end, the coda of um, the book we wrote called The Exploit, um, and the coda is called Bits and Atoms. And it was really a kind of, I don't know, a, a kind of um, early attempt to think about um, a strictly non-human um, realm or to, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been influenced by a materialist tradition throughout my whole training, but um, to kind of extend that into, um, I don't know, a, a, a more kind of radically non-human realm, a kind of materialism fleeced of its, I don't know, human uh, 
connections of some kind. Um, so I started to, uh, uh, I guess, kind of, um, I'm kind of recovering post-structuralist or something, and and then also recovering Deleuzian, uh, um, and feeling uh, sort of dissatisfied by some of the um, things that were possible in those in both of those traditions. Um, you know, Steve just mentioned the, the linguistic turn in 20th century thought and the way in which post-structuralism represents a, a kind of, I don't know, particularly, um, I don't know, highly evolved version of that, maybe we could call it. Um, and then on the other hand, uh, Deleuze's influence on philosophy had produced what in my mind was um, a, a kind of promiscuous rhizomatics or something, right? And that also... Um, this is a kind of a Web 2.0 moment too for me, right? Where I was becoming more disillusioned with um, the direction of actually existing network technologies, and I don't know. So it caused me to kind of rethink um, whether that is a kind of utopian form, or whether you know what, what are the kind of political or I don't know, just interesting uh, progressive possibilities of this kind of ubiquitous um, rhizomatics. Um, so that led me to try to um, look beyond the if you will, the greatest generation of you know French theory, the kind of May '68 generation, um, and you know it was obvious to me that there there must be a whole you know new generation of thinkers, um, and so like Eugene said, I did this a seminar that I know some of you are at actually. Uh, it's nice to see you here, um, trying to explore some of these other voices. Some of them much younger, the the you know the the the, the children of the baby boomers. Um, but some of them, like La Ruelle, um, really just, you know, someone who's been working very diligently since the late 70s, uh, for various reasons, had never really um, achieved any kind of um, audience beyond a small group of um, fellow travelers. Um, mostly because what he says is absolutely incompatible with the dominant um, discourses in, in theory. Totally incompatible with post-structuralism, for example. Um, so I uh, started working on um, uh, translating a book by uh, T. Kuhn. That was one aspect of it, um, exploring some of these other voices. Um, and finally, I, I kind of got to, um, to the work of La Ruelle, actually through Eugene, I think, originally. Um, and, and originally, originally through the work of um, Ray Brassier. Um, a friend of mine actually sort of said, like, oh, so you're, you're kind of in the import-export business, aren't you? Uh -huh. um, I think was uh, you know, his way of poking fun a little bit, um, but yeah, it does kind of come from this from this desire to um, think beyond, um, you know, what post-structuralism in that period of French theory might be able to offer. Now, I say that with some um, with with one caveat, which is that I think um, there are there are key things that we we should not discard from that legacy, um, and you know, I've taken heat for this uh, online, uh, but I think that, you know, the, the legacy of, of cultural studies, critical theory, post-structuralism has a lot of powerful things to tell us about theories of the subject, about uh, the concept of alterity, about power, about social justice, uh, and about um, my favorite concept, which is totally out of fashion, um, the concept of ideology and, and critique. So. For me, the, the kind of holy grail was how can we think beyond, how can we 
you know, find something that isn't limited by this, either the post-structuralist legacy or the Deleuzian legacy, that nevertheless can help us, you know, uh, or, or give us something interesting or exciting um, uh, in these more kind of political or social questions. Um, so anyway, so that's kind of why my, you know, why the figure of Laruelle really um, appealed to me, because I think that he allows us to do this in really interesting ways. Um, for two reasons. Uh, in my reading, he uh, tackles two basic um, philosophical concepts and two philosophical domains and takes them further than I've ever seen them taken before. <laughs> um, and I find that appealing just a, as a kind of, um, I don't know, a kind of thought experiment or something. And those two things are, on the one hand, imminence, the concept of imminence, and on the other hand, the idea of um, materialism. So those are the two, in the book, those are the two kind of, I don't know, theoretical um, core concepts that are, that are, that are driving it. Um, and Laura was very funny, right? Like he, he spends time mocking the people who think that they've articulated a, a theory of imminence and, and mocking them and showing how they you know, came up short and so on. Um, so through those two concepts, um, I've latched onto a, a term and a, a kind of, I don't know, a, 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 a I don't know, thought landscape or something that's in Laruelle. Um, it's also in other thinkers that we can talk about um, that I think is the, uh, the kind of, um, how can we put it, I don't know, the most kind of useful category for thinking about social political issues. And that's the concept of the generic. So if there's a concept or an approach or a method that is the result of this book or something, it would be that, it would be the generic. So what about digitality? Um, I don't know, I guess this is just a legacy of some of the other projects I've been working on, so maybe I'm working through a, I don't know, kind of, um, uh, I don't know, I have some kind of template that I'm superimposing on the material, but um, I, 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 in thinking about the concept of digitality, um, there are a lot of people who write on new media. Um, there's a lot of people who write on uh, technology. Um, but I found much less material uh, sort of trying to explore the concept of digitality as such, right? Sort of even uncoupled from any form of computational um, reference, right? Um, so that that's... So I started to explore that, and it became very clear to me that what Laruelle calls the philosophical decision, and what you know we conventionally, um, how we conventionally think of digitality, they actually share a, a, a common root. They're they're defined in very um, similar ways, and uh, so what is that? Well, it has to do for me with the process of distinction, distinction, and this is this is clear even if you have a very um, even just in a kind of colloquial sense of what the digital is. Um, the digital as a, as a kind of process of making discrete, or a process of dividing up um, some continuous uh, form into a, a discrete set of atoms, or sampling something at a regular um, discrete uh, sample rate, or something like that. Um, so it's this process of distinction, a uh, process of division, process of decision, right, which has to do with cutting, um, or a process of discretization that, uh, for me, is the fundamental aspect of digitality. Um, 
And this is also what, uh, very similar to what Larwell calls the philosophical decision. Um, in other words, I think after reading Larwell, we have to say that both um, philosophy and digitality share a fundamental, uh, or they both require a fundamental act, which is that something must be divided into two. So the, the kind of conceit of the book, right, is that um, we've been thinking that, digi that digitality is about zeros and ones, but really what it's about is it's about ones and twos. In other words, the one dividing into two, um, and then likewise to think about um, analogicity, the two forming some relationship of one. So that's part of the process of the book, is to stop thinking about zeros and ones and, starting, uh, and start thinking about ones and twos. Um, and I love, you know, Larowell is, I mean, he can be a, I don't know, he can be a real bastard, right? Because he tries to do this grand gesture where all of philosophy is, is summarizable in this very kind of pithy, um, and people, are, I think, are really dissatisfied with that, which, which I acknowledge. But he does say that, um, Oh, and I'll, I should add, he almost never talks about computers. So that's the other <laughs> difficulty of doing this book. But I think that if you say that digitality, we can understand digitality without computers, then I think it all lines up. Now, he does talk about computers on a few uh, occasions um, that I tried to, you know, I tried to dig up all the places where he does this. Um, and he says, so this is a quote, he says, the digital computer is endowed with the capacity for synthesis, connection, and communication, interfacing and exchange, all of which are inherently philosophical or world-bound. And then the quote I love is he says, Hegel is dead, but he lives on inside the electric calculator. So he, for Larwell, the, the, the philosophical logic and the computational or digital logic kind of go hand in hand. Um, so yeah, that's sort of a background to how the project came together. Um, yeah, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'll turn it over to Eugene and, and I think he's gonna pose some questions um, for us and then we can have a, have a group discussion. Yeah, I guess uh, maybe the, the first thing to start talking about, I mean, one thing I find interesting in, in both of your books, and it's not just in this, these most recent books, but this question about the, the non-human um, and uh, a distinction I think uh, you had made at another event where we were together between a uh, discussion about the non-human and the distinction between uh, anthrop anthropocentrism in which the human is at the center um, looking at a world that is presented to it but is also casting in its own uh, in its own eyes and uh, anthropomorphism, um, which is a version of literally in the shape of the human, but everything is, is interpreted or configured in, uh, in a human form. Uh, and that seems like a, a, an important distinction to make both in the very... It's Jane Bennett's distinction of the four chairs, too, sorry. Um, and it's an important distinction to make in, in theory, but I think also in your respective projects in the sense that they touch upon universe of things, um, climate, objects, computers, and, and various other things that are satellited sort of around us and that we're um, surrounded by. So I thought I'd maybe open it up to both of you to talk about um, this 
this idea of the non-human, and the non-human isn't even the best term to use maybe, but this, this concept and how you're thinking about it uh, in these books and, and in your current work. Okay, um, well, the distinction Eugene mentioned actually comes from Jane Bennett, who at one point in her book, Vibrant Matter, which I think is a great book, says that maybe it's worth risking anthropomorphism, thinking that other entities in the universe are like us, in order to get away from anthropocentrism. Now, I mean, both are accusations. Anthropomorphism is often used as an accusation. You're, you know, you're talking about this thing, whether the thing is a table or a living thing, as if it were human, but in fact they're not human. So, so there's the critique of anthropomorphism is we're not understanding scientifically like how an animal acts. We're, un, we're, we're projecting our own emotions and our own ideas into it. Um, what Bennett says is that, yes, there are obviously problems with that, but that um, the, there's maybe a greater risk or a greater disturbance of anthropocentrism, which is to think the universe turns upon us which is not just a pragmatic thing, but a kind of ideological thing or a kind of pre-assumption. Um, in philosophy, it certainly goes back to Kant saying that it's the way our minds shape the sense impressions we receive that creates the reality that we experience. In various forms of idealism, that comes back into that, in effect, spirit, even if it's not my mind, or but it might be some other universe mind, that spirit is sort of the what, what the universe ultimately comes down to. Um, so Bennett suggests that anthropomorphism might be a way to get away from anthropocentrism. The problem with anthropocentrism is, the f I mean, if we think only, only human beings have language, therefore we're smarter than everybody else, we have a m we're the only ones who can do reflexive meta levels of thought, all these things which follow from it. And that is an increasingly problematic gesture. I mean, it's been problematic for hundreds of years. Certainly Darwin makes it problematic in the mid-19th century. I think now that we're talking about the Anthropocene, we see what destructive effect we're having on the rest of the, of the planet, it's very problematic to be very human-centered, to not understand the ways in which other entities are, have their own points of view, basically. That it can't all be down to just what's about, I mean, it's not all about us, is sort of what I think we're trying to say. Um, the use of anthropomorphism is, um, I really think of it in very country tones. I think of it in my dog, okay? So, um, you know, my, I, have a, I have a relation, obviously an emotional and intellectual relationship with my dog. Now, there's certain, obviously certain cognitive things which, you know, there's no um, comparison. My dog can't figure out how to take off his leash or something like that, okay? And if he gets entangled, he can't even disentangle himself. They're just a cognitive, dog some cognition somehow doesn't do that. On the other hand, he has very, he's very smart cognitively. My dog really hates it whenever I leave the house without him. And he's become very brilliant at seeing any of the slightest signs that I might somewhere in the next 10 minutes be preparing to leave the house without him. And you know, he immediately lets me know that he's angry and that he wants me to stay or either stay or take him. So I mean, so I mean I'm not saying that dogs, can, dogs can't talk. And obviously, language is a big thing. But that's not the only thing. Um, this goes back, obviously, in Western philosophy. If you think of the, dip, you know, Descartes versus or Leibniz versus Descartes, Descartes says that animals are automata, and if a dog yelps in pain, that's no different than a door hinge squeaking because it hasn't been oiled. Um, I find that mo I think most people today would find it very hard to agree with Descartes. Leibniz already in says that animals, brutes, have souls. Brutes meaning non-human or non-linguistic creatures. Um, so. The way to think about it is that dogs 
ha do a dog has an emotional and cognitive life, um, just like we do. Dogs do also. I mean, they're different emotions. I don't think dog necessarily, dogs necessarily have the same emotions that human beings do. They have different kinds of emotions. They have different kinds of desires. They may want different things. They the categories for understanding the world might be somewhat different from our categories. In some cases, this can be you know, to our benefit. That's why we're, you know, we're able to make them our slaves and they can't make us their slaves. You know? um, though it's really, I don't know, there's a kind of BDSM kind of relationship between humans and dogs. And you know, I've never been a good enough. I, I've never been a good enough dominant to really control my dog the way I should. But that's maybe more confession you want to hear. But anyway, the point is that it seems as absurd to say that dogs don't have emotions and ideas as it is to say that because dogs are not linguistic, therefore, I mean, it said that because they're not linguistic, seems to be as absurd as it would be to say that dogs feel and think the same way that we do, which they obviously don't. So what we need to do is sort of think of the ways in which other entities in the world have types of sentience, even if they aren't the same type of sentience we have. And I use sen sentience as my favorite word here because their other words are cognition and consciousness. Consciousness is a real problem. If you read current philosophy of consciousness, basically there's so little consensus. Like among analytic philosophers, writing about consciousness, say every possible position has been adopted by somebody and argued for very strenuously. And you know, when I read this stuff, all, everyone, whatever article reading, it makes a lot of sense to me, and I say they must be right. But then I read somebody else who has a totally different point. So it's really it's something we obviously have not gotten very far to work out. But consciousness, obviously, we know a lot of things go on in our minds or brains, um, which aren't conscious. Whether you think of this in Freudian terms or whether you think of this in terms of cognitive psychology, which has demonstrated that many of our mental processing things are are non-conscious and often inaccessible to consciousness. So consciousness is in the right term. I don't think usually, I mean, the most favorite word today is cognition, but I don't really think cogni cognition is the right word because I think, I mean, I, uh, this is the another trend in contemporary humanities scholarship of affect theory, and I'm, I tend to think that affect theory is right and that affectivity, which can be defined in many different ways, but which is irreducible to, to cognition, is, plays a big part in how both human beings and other entities act and react to the world and interact and all this kind of stuff. So cognition doesn't seem sufficient and consciousness doesn't seem sufficient. So I prefer the word sentient, which maybe has its own problems. But there's sort of the sense, I don't think trees are conscious. It would be very surprising if they were. But there's increasing evidence that trees are sentient. They have flexible responses to, to their environment and, you know, and have reactions which um, again, I'm not saying that a tree feels sad or gets angry in the sense that we understand it, but trees react in ways which indicate forces applied to them, leave counterforces, not just a mechanistic cause and effect thing. There's a kind of, I mean, there are various ways to think about this. But anyway, so I think we have to take more seriously that affectivity and cognition and sentience apply to the non-human world. And that it seems to me, on scientific grounds, this is pretty incontestable at this point for all living organisms. So trees don't have brains, they don't have nerve cells. And bacteria don't even have nuclei, but bacteria exhibit phenomena of sentience as well. Now, whether you know non-living things do, again, there's no scientific evidence for it. And I'm not going to say this table is getting mad at me because I'm knocking on it. But, um, but there are all kinds of issues about how, you, if you think of sentience and life, um, this is something Eugene's written about. Um, there are all kinds of weird problems when we try to talk about life that we get into. And I'm wondering about whether that 
rather than saying that life is a precondition for sentience, we might say that sentience or the potentiality of sentience is a precondition for something to be alive, and that might change the issue in ways that I really only have a very dim, <laughs> dim view uh, idea about now. But that's why I'm currently writing a book about sentience in science fiction, where I write about books like Peter Watts's Blind Sight, which is a novel in which human beings encounter an alien race from another solar system who are indisputably superior to us in every possible cognitive way. They have better technology, they're much smarter strategists, they can outthink us in every possible way. It turns out they're not conscious. In other words, they don't ha have a anything which would correspond to what we think of as in inner mentality or inner consciousness. Another book I wrote about is Scott Baker's Neuropath, which is a novel which takes the most extreme speculations that eliminate this neuroscience, that, mo that we're completely delusional about everything going on in our own minds and that everything we think of as consciousness, and especially when we have any meta issues and metacognition attempts to reflect on our own mental processes is by necessity delusional. I wrote about a short story by Maureen McHugh, which is about a woman who discovers that a computer expert system seems to be sentient, but it turns out there's its interests and the way it's sentient are so different from anything we humanly can understand that there's no way for us to communicate with it. Uh, another text I'm writing about is Ted Chang's novella, The Life Cycle of Software Objects, which is about Enti software entities which are sentient and to which therefore we have certain ethical responsibilities but which are not alive in any possible sense and they, when you turn off the computer they're not there anymore. Um, so I'm thinking about when which sentient, non-human sentience, multiple ways in which non-human sentience exists which is something philosophers have a thing about which, which can more be thought about I think in, in, in science fictional speculation, at least that's my gamble. Um, now obviously non, the, the non-human seem, because of environmental questions today and global warming, the non-human is maybe urgent for us in a way that it hasn't been earl in earlier periods. But nonetheless, I think there's a larger philosophical background why I think if we take anything about what we know in biology seriously, we have to take the non-human seriously and not be as anthropocentric as we've tended to be for centuries. Um. Yeah, no, I'm glad, because I, I, I wanted to also pick up something from um, something that I learned in reading Eugene's book on life called Afterlife. And that book actually is about, a, a lot of the book is about medieval philosophy and certain um, kind of methodol methodologies for thinking. Um, and I'm thinking about um, the notion of a kind of subtractive reason um, or um, apophatic, maybe we could call it like apophatic non-humanism, right, where you say, well, how do we get to the non-human? Well, um, do we do we you know um, can can we simply just subtract all of the things that we know to be human? Will that give us some some sense of it? Um, and I think, in fact, this is mostly what both what two people, what both Mayasu and Laruel do. I think they are kind of the masters of this this apophatic or or negative or subtractive mode of reason. Um, in other words, you know, we, we know that humans operate in such and such a way, so if we remove the fact that they operate in such and such a way, um, right, remove, like, what La all, the only thing Laruel ever does is he removes the transcendental ingredient from whatever he's reading, right? So that's what he does, and then that, that's the non-philosophical, I don't know, empty husk or something that's left. On the other side is the sort of, like, um, affirm affirmation mode or something. We could call it like a kind of cataphatic um, non-humanism. Um, in other words, um, 
you know, humans operate in such, you, you were kind of maybe doing both at the same time, I think, right? So we could say like humans operate in such and such a way. Um, I don't know about the Jane Bennett stuff, but it sounds like maybe you're saying she's part of this. I think I, actually someone like Bruno Latour is part of this, right? So he says, he says, well, you know, humans have parliaments, so why, you know, why shouldn't we say that there's like a parliament of objects or something, right? Or like humans have politics, so why shouldn't we say there's a politics um, of objects? Um, and then I was thinking that Deleuze might be, I kind of don't know where he would fit here, right? Because he's trying to, you know, legitimately say, well, what, you know, what is like crystalline uh, becoming or something, right? Um, I think I think it's a very successful way of exploring non-humanism. In fact, in Deleuze, um, now I'm I'm placing kind of my bet on on the apophatic mode because um, for me it is the it's the one path that leads to what Laruel calls um, insufficiency or the insufficient, um, and for me that's just a much more useful concept, a much more useful approach, as opposed to the, to the other approach, which I think can only lead to a kind of transcendental way of thinking or a, a, a way of thinking that is rooted in a kind of sufficiency model. Or, um, and what I mean by sufficiency is that there is some sort of um, term or category or approach or position that in some ways is a kind of sufficient explanatory framework, right? Um, I think Laruel and maybe Mayasu in a different way are the best at pursuing a kind of um, subtractive, negative, or, or insufficient form of non-humanism. Would you, I don't know, would you agree? And I also wanted to ask, you know, because I like your examples of the dog or the tree, and I wonder if following this kind of cataphatic mode, um, sorry, the apophatic yeah. mode, the negative mode, couldn't we also say, like, well, what about all the forms of kind of sensory capacity, you know, and the obvious one is like the dog's sense of smell, yeah. or a kind of, a kind of um, what, what could we call it, a kind of like metabolic capacity in trees or mm -hmm. something, having to do with like regulating natural resources and elements that are just, that humans can't do. In other words, yeah. like maybe we are in a, in, a, in the kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe we are uh, sort of, um, um, you know, maybe maybe there's all these things that we don't have that we could actually gain from the non-human realm. Or rather, in yeah. a, instead of thinking that we have all the abilities and the non-human realm is is deficient or something. Yeah. Well, again, I think, um, yeah, I think we're. I mean, I think we're a little too proud of ourselves. Yeah. And you know, I, you know, I don't want to say that I don't care about other human beings, or you know, or something like that. And I mean a lot of these things end up having human stakes. I mean, one thing, I've been very interested in in discoveries in plant, about plant sentience and things like that. But of course, you can't have that without somebody, there's an article appears in the New York Times every six months which basically trashes vegans in a very snarky way. They're saying, well, plants have feelings too, so the vegans who think they're being ethical and eating animals are really just doing the same thing to plants. And I mean, you know, that's, you know, I'm not a vegan, but it seems to me that that is just, you know, really sleazy and and it's just being done to make a debating point, but it, it's, it's the wrong way to go. It's really bringing it back to a kind of sense of smug superiority, mm. you know. Um, so, so yeah, I think there are other capacities. I think what it comes, but I mean, again, for me, there's a metaphysical thing or ontological thing, which I think hooks up with questions about the Anthropocene and about the environmental disaster we're heading towards, but which is not just reducible to it. And it's, 
mean, this comes back to my interest in Whitehead. One of Whitehead's most important points, I think, is that Whitehead doesn't differentiate, or ultimately says there's no differentiation between perception and causality. Okay, so causality is anytime anything affects anything else, and that's what perception is. When I perceive something, that thing is affecting me in some way, and I'm registering in some way. Now, there are many, many different ways this works. There's some ways things which affect me, I can't see x-rays, but if I get enough of them, I'll get sick, but I can't perceive them in a conscious way, but in a certain sense, my body's perceiving them because my body's cells are becoming diseases as they're being bombarded with all this radiation. So in a certain sense, th there's a way in which perception is a subset of causality, and we shouldn't think of them as two separate things. Mm -hmm. And part of Whitehead's critique of the entire tradition um, centered on, on Hume and um, Kant is precisely that they, they don't get this. So Hume poses the problem that we never, Hume claims we never experience causality because we only see separate, you know, we have get separate sense impressions. So we never experience the fire causing my hand to burn if I put my hand in it. We just experience this con constant conjunction and therefore we take it for granted from because of habit that, um, that, that these things are connected. But we can't really experience causality. Kant is very disturbed by this and Kant tries to answer it by saying, yes, causality is a category imposed by our minds upon a world which is utterly unknowable and which may be outside of causality and, and there's all this kind of stuff. Of course, Kant runs into problems with that because he also is sort of saying that, that things themselves do cause things in us. And that's been ever since Kant, when, with or, it was like when Kant was already alive and it's still continues. But 20th century, late 20th century, like analytic philosophy is still mostly Humean. I mean, David Lewis, who's one of the most prominent later 20th century analytic philosophers basically says he's a human. He says all there are particular matters of facts and things which supervene on them. So he also says that causality isn't real in a certain sense. He try he goes through very elaborate ways to define causality with the things of possible worlds and um, and philosophers like to develop these very bizarre cases of alternative worlds. I mean, Hilary Putnam writes about a world which is H which, which is water and the water has all the same properties that water has in our world, but the water isn't made of H2O. It has a completely different chemical composition. Now, this doesn't seem to me to be even physically possible, but because it doesn't involve any a priori contradiction, he says it's thinkable, and therefore, and so th there's this, this whole thing, and this, I think, Whitehead already in the 1920s was saying that this comes from the failure to understand perception as part of causality. Whitehead said, Hume is simply, Hume is wrong. We are always experiencing causality. It's not true we only experience separate impressions. We are experiencing things impinging upon us. Mm -hmm. The fact that I see things is something impinging upon me. And this comes, this is a kind of physiological thing which happens in my body prior to my having a mental image and saying, does this representation correspond to what's really out there or is it a hallucination or am I processing in some way? So basically, things seem to affect other things. And you might say that that's, Causality, and there are various ways. There's some analytic philosophers, George Molnar and Stephen Mumford and Ronnie Lil Anjem, have worked along this line of thing of seeing a realist theory of causality. But perception, saying that causality isn't real because it's only what because we only know what we perceive and we don't perceive causality is wrong. If you accept the idea that per perception is already a, a subset of causality, and if you accept that, that sort of also has the effect of perception is a mental thing and causality is a physical thing. What's it's that's sort of a way of getting away of mental physical dualism. So anytime anything is affected by and <coughs> reacts to something else, um, there's some kind of causality going on, which in a primitive way is some kind of perception going on. Now, obviously, animal perceptions are much more sophisticated than perception when one bolt when one 
when one billiard ball hits another billiard ball and communicates its motion. But I, I, I think it's not incorrect to say in a very primitive or primordial sense that the billiard ball is perceiving the other billiard ball and responding to it. Living things seem to have a much greater capacity to do reality testing and not wait for stimuli, but actually test, you know, initiate things to test. And they have much more, including non-animals like plants and bacteria, have much more flexible ways of responding than a rock does when it falls off a cliff and falls to the ground. But I mean, the point is to see that these as a kind of continuum, rather than see there's a radical distinction between the physical and the mental. And that is a way of, again, saying maybe our our particular human mental things, if we see them as a as subset of this larger set of processes, and we see a continuum among them instead of seeing that we're radically disjunct from all the other methods. That's a starting point and that's a way to answer that question. And, and I take it that's why you're why you find someone like Whitehead so useful because the through the concept of prehension? Yeah. I mean yeah, I mean again prehension sort of splits the difference between perception and causality. should never be used as a noun. And so I'm curious about uh, mentality as a kind of yeah. um, quality or property of matter. Could humanity also be a quality or property of all matter? Uh, that's, that's a good question and a very hard one because um, Whitehead tells us to be leery of, you know, properties of substances <laughs> as a way. I mean, it's a, it's a linguistic way, but it's not necessarily the best way to think about how things work. The human as an adjective, I mean, it's really, this is really a quote from William Burroughs. <laughs> in the 1950s, Burroughs, I mean, and it's from a letters from Burroughs to Allen Ginsberg, and Burroughs says, and this is a direct quote, as far as well as can remember, human Allen is an adjective, and its use as a noun is in itself deplorable. <laughs> <laughs> but he's, he's, I mean, he's, he's sort of, I mean, it, there was a specific context was that this is in the 50s when Burroughs and Ginsburg and other gay men were, you know, very conflicted because of, you know, the ubiquity of homophobia, and they were constantly trying to think of ways to cure it, and then saying, "I can't cure it." I, and n and Ginsburg had written Burroughs a letter saying, "I'm doing this trying to think to cure my homosexuality. It makes me feel like I'm a human again, or something like that." And that's when Burroughs reproached him with that. But I think there's a larger point about, you know, what Whitehead calls the substance predicate mode of thought. To think of human as an adjective is to get rid of human as an essential category, to, to think of it as, as a quality, but again, I'm, I don't want to say it's a property of an underlying noun either, so I'm not sure what the best linguistic way is for that question. Yeah, I mean, I think, the, I, think I would agree with the last point in particular that it all depends on you know, what, what that human category actually means. And, it, and if it means a, a sort of, um, I don't know, I'm much more interested in the notion of a very kind of like, I don't know, like impoverished, sense of the word, right? And um, I don't know, I sometimes say that we need a, like we have this kind of gluttonous philosophy and we actually really need an impoverished or even like a kind of anorexic thought, right? A thought that is not aspiring to, um, is not a, a aspiring to, uh, you know, produce a kind of sufficient um, explanation for everything, right? Um, so, I don't know. I mean, I, I, the, uh, so just to continue on the last point about essentialism, right? I think that would be the problem. 
And so what are the ways to solve that? Second question is: uh, We also experience, and maybe would like to challenge critically, this idea of the human because it also separates us not only from the so-called non-humans, but from other humans as not being mm -hmm. so human. Right? Mm -hmm. right. Sure. Which is not an added that has to do with post-structural mm -hmm. evolution. Could that be recovered uh, into your 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 developments? Could they make this sort of more Well, okay, the, we might have different, for me, yes, yeah, sure. I mean, um, they're different. I mean, the, the question of the human and how it's critiquing post-structuralism also comes out in very different ways in different thinkers, so it's hard to do that. But um, partly it's, you know, understanding, I mean, and partly it's science in the sense that I think we know that we have this big affinity with other organisms, that we evolved out of them, that we share a lot of genes with them. Um, that our own bodies have trillions of bacteria and other microbes in them, so that we're not, you know, we're not a single species in a certain sense. Um, understanding how that works, and might also understand how relational things are. That, I mean, we can't. I mean, it's like thinking about the food chain and how, you know, which we're poisoning, and how, you know, I mean, plants produce energy. Plants take energy from the sun, and then we, you know different levels take it from plants, different animals are taking plants, and so on and so forth. I mean, so it, that's one way I think about it. And certainly, I mean, one thing which has come up recently in critical animal studies has been talking about how we treat animals and relating to the how we treat other humans who we've often, human beings who we've often thought of being less than human, which if you look at whole histories of sexism, racism, genocide, you know, ethnic conflict, and so on and so forth, y you can see that happening. Now, um, I'm not sure that I mean, I'm still a residual humanist in that I'm not, I don't treat my dog the same way I treat other human beings. You know, I love my dog and I feel there's a symbiosis between us, but obviously, you know, I don't let him tell me what to do as much as I tell him what to do. So, but nonetheless, there's obviously is, is a continuity and again, de-anthropocentrizing, anthro-decentrizing our thought might be a way, I mean, important to rectify things. Um, yeah, the so I don't know. I, I, I the one one point of caution maybe I'd want to bring up would be, um, I think, you know, I think we also have to kind of step back and ask ourselves why, you know, why are we pursuing any of these topics, any of these questions, right? Like, so what are the stakes of thinking about the non-human, for example? Um, and I'm concerned that there might be a kind of um, kind of um, important oversighters or a kind of casualty that happens along the way, which is that we sort of, um, in, in pursuit of this kind of non-human realm, in, in, in producing maybe even a kind of, I don't know, um, kind of eschesis or a sort of self-annihilation, a kind of mode of self-annihilation, that in fact we are um, producing a kind of blindness 
to a residual set of structures and a residual set of organizations that remain, whether or not we have a, a sense of a kind of, you know, a kind of pride in humanity or something, right? And so for me, you know, like I'm not in this because I want to know about the like the, the like the archie fossil or something, right? Like I'm in this because I'm a Marxist and I'm interested in social justice, right? And so that for me is why I'm drawn to something a category like the generic because I think it's an ethical category, right? That's why I'm I'm. I don't know. I, actually, I just think that's important to, to put in there, right? Like, I'm reminded of, of Foucault, right? Like, Foucault is, Foucault is interested in power. Um, he's not interested in, in prison guards, you know? I mean, for, for, for him, you have to move through the prison guard in order, you have to move beyond the prison guard in order to see the kind of, like, you know, micro-fascisms of everyday life, right? And, and for me, that is, that's really the important important goal. Um, and whether we can get there through humanism or through non-humanism, non that for me is a secondary question. I'd say for me, it's, I'm, I'm much more of an esthete than anything else, though I do identify my politics as being Marxist. And, you know, it's so, I mean, in a certain sense, I just find these things interesting or fascinating, so I want to enter into them and explore them, and I get certain sensations from them. And, you know, but I kind of think Oscar Wilde is right in the soul of man and the socialism that unless you have, as long as you have a property and, in, and, and divisions of power and economic ownership and influence, you can't have aesthetic self-realization at all, or very few people can. And, you know, <laughs> that may sound flippant. I don't think it, I don't really mean it to be flippant, but I mean, I have, I, I sort of separate my own personal enthusiasm and interest from my very strong feelings about how our social world is organized, which I think needs to be changed. But I'm not an activist. I can't say I've really done much of anything to help it change. I pursue stuff that's interesting to me, and I have a certain privilege because, you know, a lot of the younger generation won't get to be university professors the way I am because there we have neoliberal policies that are currently destroying the university system. So, I mean, it, of course, politics never is, is banished from it. And I realize my own position of privilege in being able to pursue this stuff, but nonetheless, I mean, that's what I'm about in terms of that's what I'm pursuing.
Um, well, you know, this is what we don't know yet. I mean, I think, though, I'm very drawn to Alex's book and to his, you know, Laruel's suggestion that we give up on making distinctions. It's still very hard to give up on them. I think there are many kinds of distinctions, and maybe we can make less absolute dualistic ones and think about continua and degrees and multiplicities. I mean, this is this is my Deleuzian path, which is Alex's also, but which Laruel is criticizing. Mm. I don't, you know, again, it's, uh, so I don't, I mean, I don't have a firm thing on what we can do with that, but I mean, sure, I mean, I think the problem is, you know, these technologies are being developed and they'll probably de be developed more. We don't know what'll, what, what'll co come out of them. I mean, that's, I'm very interested in discourses about the post-human and about, I mean, David Roden has a new book about post-humanity, which I think is very much worth reading where he, Things about these different, different what he calls he advocates a kind of speculative posthumanism, which he distinguishes both from transhumanism, which is these people in Silicon Valley who want to make themselves into supermen and superwomen, and from what he calls the critical posthumanism of people who have been critiquing, you know, the way you know what the people in California are doing. Kind of. um, but that we have to. I mean, uh, for me, this is where science fiction becomes relevant. I mean. Donna Haraway already in the 1980s said that science fiction and social reality becoming indistinguishable. And to me, that is a very important point. And science fiction, often better than philosophy, explores, explores these potentialities. Mm. And we can come with very, that's what I'm writing about, but it, it, we can get, get very disturbing possibilities. Uh, we don't necessarily know. My way to try to finesse it philosophically, and this is still doing a philosophical decision of the sort Laruel says we shouldn't, is Two, I think we need to think about two things, energetics and informatics. Part of the problem with a lot of contemporary thought is that it only thinks about informatics, doesn't think about energetics. Mm. Energetics is all continuation about, you know, energy transformations and entropy and, you know, and dissipation of heat and all this kind of stuff. Um, informatics has to do with, with, with the kinds of things you're turning one into two, distinctions, bits, processing. Um, I think it's an economic, ultimately it's, e I mean, my, one of my mottos is a quote actually from Mallarmé, the French symbolist poet. He, sa he says, in the end, everything comes down to aesthetics and political economy. And, you know, it's a, I think there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, aesthetics and political economy is ultimately the human form of energetics. I mean, we have, we have, we have energy flows in the universe, but Tai tries to link this to human economies. When you restrict yourself more to the human, I think you get Marxist economics, which very much describes the situation we're in socially right now. Um, and so you have energy flows and then you have, as and then, but, and th but then the other thing you have is aesthetics, which has to do with sort of something which is non-conceptual, which is contemplative, which involves kind of, I, I think it can be made relative, to I mean, I'm not sure that my aesthetics is subtracted in the way Alex is talking about, but there's certainly a, a connection there. It's a way of um, withdrawing or of contemplating um, when, one of the things I talk about in, in, in my new book is um, when Kant says that aesthetic pleasure is disinterested, that's been one of the most mocked sentences. I mean, Nietzsche has these pages and pages where he talks about how stupid Kant is to think it's disinterested. It's, it's the thing Nietzsche says we're most passionate about, how can it be disinterested? But 
the disinterest, I think what Kant means by that is this kind of withdrawal, subtraction, or um, contemplation which doesn't necessarily, which often involves a suspension of action and reaction. And I think there's a virtue to thinking about that dimension of things. And isn't kind of one of the marvelous payoffs of thinking in the Whiteheadian um, prehensive mode that, that, you know, sort of ontology is aesthetics? Well, I mean, this is yeah, I mean, this is something I talk about extensively. In I mean, Graham Harman basically says aesthetics is first philosophy, and I kind of agree with him, though, for different reasons. I don't accept his formulation of it, or I think his formulation is only a subset of the ways in which I'd want to formulate it through Whitehead and Deleuze. But, mm, but yeah, I mean, aesthetics involves a kind of separation, a connection, which is all separation. You have a relation, but you also have the the thing which you're relating to is separate from you in a certain radical sense. And this is one way of negotiating a non-anthropocentric understanding of the world, let's say, or involvement with the world. Thank you. I don't <laughs> 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 one that I'd say about myself. But. Either cool or like cool by attachment, right? 
Now, that's, that's the thing. And then about you, Alex, the same question. <laughs> what, what makes, you know, the, the human side of it with human puts the two together back, and that's the power of computation, is the fact that you're never dealing with a computer or digital alone. There's always a human involved, but there's always another form that, either human or inhuman, mm. that's putting the two back into one. And that's what gives it its possibility. Mm. You know, like, what limits it or makes it insufficient is a, is a one into two. But there's always another agent there that's putting the two together into one. And that's what gives it its sort of, like, its, like, successful mm. sort of, like, brain. Mm. And also about Gladwell, which I'm completely interested and interested in your work, is that don't you think, like, someone like Sellers goes beyond Gladwell by kind of, like, dissing the kind of philosophy of man as manifest image and actually proposing something called the view from nowhere, which is mm. this idealistic scientific view, which is always updating, which is mm. always, like, aware of its own limitations mm. and can compensate for the problems and insufficiencies of... So like the, the classic philosophy or what, what Larry Welk calls philosophy in opposed to what he calls non-philosophy. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and there might be some interesting connections to make. I mean, maybe Brassier is the one who's doing that most, um, you know, is, is the most advanced person making those connections. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think one, one of the reasons why I really like Larry Welk actually is that um, you know, there's a certain sense like, oh, well, let's just like overturn the apple cart of philosophy and, you know, and, you know, I don't know, build out from the ashes or something. And I think a, a, a cursory read of La Ruelle, you might think that that's what he's doing, but actually that's not what he's doing at all, right? What, what, he, what he says is we're not trying to overturn philosophy. You know, a philosophy has to keep on doing what it's doing because we need raw material. <laughs> we need the material to read in order to, you know, neuter the transcendental core or something, right? And so I like that, that, that he's creating almost a kind of... Um, I'm starting to think of it more in terms of almost like a kind of um, alter world, right? Like a kind of parallaxing, a thought through parallaxing. I mean, he talks about, you know, he uses the metaphor of like, you know, Euclidean geometry and non-Euclidean geometry, right? And non-Euclidean geometry is not trying to overturn Euclidean geometry. And I don't know. I, I think that that's maybe a more, it's a more complicated position. And I think maybe because it allows for, um, transcendental thinking and non-transcendental thinking to happen at the same time. Um, I don't know. For me, that's, that's, that's ultimately a more interesting approach. Um, but I am, I am, I, am, I don't know, I am attracted to the, like, just the kind of overturn the apple cart um, kind of Nietzschean gesture or something. But. Okay, my, okay, um, I sort of have a philosophical answer and a political answer, which are separate. So the philosophical answer is you summarize four positions which have been called speculative realism. I have a fifth one, or maybe I should say a sixth one, since I take it that Eugene has a fifth one. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I think, you know, all terms, I mean, you have to be something of a nominalist. All terms have a certain vagueness to them, as Wittgenstein said. I mean, I, I still find speculative realism as a label useful because it refers to a core set of problems, even though the problems are argued in different ways. I mean, I think Harman, I, I respect Harman, and I think highly of him, I, I, I really like Brassier as well. I mean, per, I'm talking pers personality. I mean, you know, what can you, Pete Wolf, I haven't read Pete's, Pete Wolfendale's book yet. I just got it in the mail. I haven't had the chance to read it yet. I've talked to them. I just read you that page from the Yeah, from the but I mean, you know, Pete is, I've met Pete, and I've read his blog for years. 
Pete is somebody I disagree with about most things, but he's an incredibly intense and incredibly smart guy. I, a few people I have more intellectual respect for Barnum, and he didn't write a 400-page book just because he thinks this is a load of crap which we should throw down the toilet. I mean, you know, he wouldn't spend that much time critiquing it if it didn't bother him, you know? I mean, and he's a really smart and intense guy who really takes these problems seriously. I, you know, so I'm in favor of taking things seriously like that, and, you know, you can talk about the marketing aspects and the blogging aspects, but I think there is a core of importance in all these people. And if I read somebody, there are a lot of things I read which make no impression. I don't tend to do too many polemics because I think that's boring and it leads to horrible consequences. Mostly if I write about somebody, it's because even if I violently disagree with them, I find them interesting or they provoke me in some way and I want to think through those things. So that's sort of my philosophical answer. There's a political answer, which is, um, you know, when it comes to at the end of the day, when it comes to politics, I'm really a vulgar, old-fashioned vulgar Marxist. I really believe that there's an economic base and everything else is a superstructure, which means that everything else is ultimately epiphenomenal. So I think political things like the Republican victory, I, I mean, it's epiphenomenal. We, list, we live in a regime of capital accumulation where everything is subordinated to the accumulation of capital, the extraction of surplus value, the appropriation of formerly non-commodity things and then turning into new forms of capital. I think this is a relentless regime which dominates every aspect of our lives. And yes, there are all these many mediations and many auton local autonomies, but basically that's what it comes down to as far as, as I can see the world. And, and I know, too am a vulgar Marxist. So um, so that would, I mean, so when, so when you talk about the political things, I mean, I think that's where it all goes back to. You have to look at these economic processes of mm -hmm. exploitation, expropriation, and capital accumulation. I'll just add one follow-up to that, which is that um, I think one of the best things that's happened for Laruel is that he was not labeled a speculative realist, mm -hmm. which if you go back, if it was, you know, if we rewind to 2007 or 2008 uh, and you were reading all the stuff at the time, you could very easily have, have made yeah. come to that conclusion um, for obvious reasons. I mean, he, he has a, in my mind, he has the most strident uh, critique of correlationism. You know, he doesn't use that word. It's 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 Mayus's term, but I think that Laruelle, in fact, withdraws from um, correlation more aggressively, more effectively, more rigorously than any of the other people involved in that movement. Um, and I looked it up. He did it first when Mayus, who was 15 years old, which is well, yeah. This is this um, is this is actually something Alex and I were talking about when we were both writing our books, which is <laughs> that there is a certain structure in Mayus which sounds like an echo of Laruelle. Could be, yeah. You know, a decision. I mean, there's. I think that Mayasu has a very dim like view a, of Laruel, actually. The correlational dis decision is, you know, you can compare the correlational decision to the philosophical decision yeah. in Laruel. And in, in, in Laruel, he, he sort of, you know, it, you can see the, the, the beginnings of it in the late 70s, but he really it really starts to solidify in the early to middle 80s, in, in 84, 85, 83, in there. There's something happening. Um, you can see it actually in the aesthetic writings, um, also in, in uh, uh, Michel Henri's book on, um, on Kandinsky, and some of, uh, um, some of the other writings that are coming around in that particular time. There's this bizarre gelling of work in this one particular um, s you know, subset of authors where they're uh, producing this kind of very radical realist position. And it comes out of aesthetics, which is, uh, Deleuze does it first actually, I think, yeah. a couple of years earlier. Um, so there's his critique of correlationism, and then also just the fact that he talks about the real. You know, so it may not be a form of realism that um, philosophical that that corresponds to philosophical realism, which tends to pose questions that I think are rather silly, right? Like questions: Does an external world exist? Yes or no? Right? Um, 
Philosophical realism, yes, it does exist. Um, Laruel is not really interested in those kinds of questions. Nevertheless, he does have a concept of the real, um, and so uh, I think uh, we have to consider him as, as some kind of a speculative realist. Speculation for vulgarity. Hmm. Anybody else? I was actually going to say one more thing in answer to your question, which is um, I've talked with, I mean, Brassier's invocation of Sellers. I mean, Sellers is like the 20th century Kant, but he only does the first critique. He doesn't do the third critique, which for me is the important and the radical moment in Kant. The third critique is where he thinks of you know, non-conceptual judgments, and that's, that's something which there's no room for in Sellers, because Sellers is purely doing a version of the first critique. Yeah, I'll respond to the bare life thing because you're right. There, there is a kind of. Um, it's it seems like that concept is similar to the concept of the generic, but I think, um, and I don't know if this is if this if this is um, uh, you know a, a correct reflection of of, of Agamben's thinking, but I think from Laura Will's point of view, he would say that bare life is in fact not a kind of impoverished or stripped down category. That in fact it's the opposite. It's something that has been so. In so completely imbued with um, what Laruel would call a kind of representational harassment or something. In other words, that there is a, a powerful transcendental sufficien sufficiency in, in the idea of bare life, so much so that it becomes the axis like through which the state of exception can actually perform its, its activity, right? And so you're right. It, it, it's, it's, it's bizarre that only through this sort of avatar of um, of kind of um, this kind of this kind of avatar of of, of um, uh, a kind of um, you know the human form stripped of all its I don't know humanity ability to act and so on, um, but I think that might just be a a, 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 a contradiction, right? That in fact, uh, bare life is the perfect instance of transcendental sufficiency. Um, I mean, the irony of the generic in La Ruelle is that it does, I think it has a subtractive logic, but it doesn't actually take anything away from you, right? In some ways, it kind of gives everything back to you. <laughs> like the conditional possibility? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
And I like this idea of harassment, right? Like the idea that structures of rep representation harass us. And wouldn't it be great if we could like demilitarize them? You know, in other words, we're not left with um, like nothingness, but we're returned to, um, it becomes this kind of trivialism, right? Like we're returned to the thing whatsoever that you are. Um, but that's okay, you know, I think that's, that might be the goal. Um, all I have different responses to the three people you mentioned. Um, Leotard, in some ways, is most interesting to me, and Leotard is important here for several things. I mean, you mentioned his talk about inhumanity, which actually is taken by Brassier in his Reflections on Extinction. And I should say, in Brassier, I, I, I feel very powerfully his stuff about extinction, and I mean, it fits in with my own nihilistic tendencies. <laughs> when I get suspicious of Brassier is when he reinvents rationalism. I mean, that's the part which seems idealistic to me, which yeah. I have trouble with. But so I, th so I think, yeah, that the stuff, but there's, I mean, Leotard's also important because of his er earlier stuff, I mean, especially the book Libidinal Economy, which Ian Grant translated into English, and which is at the heart, as Ben Noyce pointed out, who was here in New York last week, um, is at the center of, accelera of accelerationism, which has a certain intersection with, uh, with certain aspects of speculative realism. So I think Leotard, I mean, pr my biggest problem with Leotard is that actually I'd like to read, um, I, I need to re-engage re with Leotard on the third critique because I'm more interested in the beautiful than the sublime, which is a counterintuitive position, but <laughs> I mean, I think Leotard is one of the most important things to think about the third critique in recent years. So I mean, I think there's a lot in Leotard. For the others, Haraway's always been important to me. I mean, you know, I would add, I would, uh, I would add Jameson to Haraway and because they were both writing stuff from the 1980s, which now reads as common sense, but which back then was like, you know, what the fuck is going on? And so I think it's astonishing that, you know, that that amount of prescience is astonishing and really important. Um, the, th the one I have the most trouble with is Agamben, and I'm trying to be cautious here because I haven't read enough Agamben, but there are certain reasons why I didn't feel like I wanted to. But um, my problem, and this may be too off the top of my head and too crass, but my problem with Agamben is I don't really accept seeing the Holocaust and the camps as a, as a model for modern politics. I'm a, too much of a Marxist. And I think Bear Life was created when, during the original expropriation, when the peasants were torn away from their land so they could become proletarians who could, own, could sell nothing, the only thing they owned to sell was their labor power. I think that's where you get, that's where Bear Life is invented. And it has to do with how proletarianization is different from slavery and other previous right. forms of oppression. And, and that, you know, that was the enabling possibility for some, I mean, the, you know, I mean, I, I'm Jewish, so I grew up with my parents always telling me that the Nazis were the most unique evil and that they were totally incommensurate with anything else that ever happened in all of human history, including slavery in the U.S. and the extermination of the Native Americans and all this kind of stuff. And I part, I've always resisted that because there is that kind of Jewish exceptionalism. But, um, you know, the thing is that the Nazism, as I think the Frankfurt School did understand, it has something to do, it's, it's, it's without the logic of capitalism, you couldn't have had concentration camps where they industrially extracted, you know, preoccupied people's bodies to sell them later and, and where they organ the way they organized the camps. So I think it's, in that sense, I think it's a mistake to see, to see Nazism and the Holocaust as the paradigm as opposed to seeing it as itself rooted more in a more primordial, more bed paradigm which has to do with the invention of proletarianism by the invention of capitalism. I'll, can I can I just I mean be crass and have put in a so 
I mean, my book just came out, but University of Minnesota Press is also having a new series called Forerunners, which are short electronic e-books. They'll be also available as print on demand, but they're shorter than regular academic books. So instead of being 50 to 100,000 words, they're like 15 to 25,000 words. So the first of these just came out like a few weeks ago. I have a book on accelerationism, which will be coming out from Minnesota in the first quarter of 2015. I don't know the exact date, but um, I sort of take a position which is in between, say, the accelerationist reader and the people in there on one hand side and Ben Noyes' critique of accelerationism on the other hand. And I sort of view, I mean, I'll just say I view stuff, some stuff I did in New York earlier on it flux, but it's been all rewritten and expanded, and I basically am trying to take up both the relation of accelerationism to Marxist theory and its relation to the kind of aestheticism I'm interested in. So I sort of have, I sort of the book sort of sees acceleration in, in a thing which moves between, on the one hand, sort of an Oscar Wildean vision of the soul of man and the socialism, and on the other hand, the kind of harrowing visions of of how we can continue to live with a destructive, you know, all-engulfing capital, which I find in several recent science fiction writers. So that's my own commercial plug for my next project. So, um, I'm not in this book, but... <laughs> you should be. Well, it, it happens that later this year, I'm coming out with two books later this year. One's on speculative realism and the other's on accelerationism. So that makes me, I don't know, maybe the most hopelessly trendy <laughs> wannabe. I actually feel mostly... I really, I don't know if you saw the recent Jim Jarmusch movie, Only Lovers Left Alive. I really identified with that movie, even though I didn't want to, because it's basically Tilda Swinton and Tom Hiddleston are these aging vampires who are basically aging hipsters, but they've already seen everything, been through everything, <laughs> experienced everything, so they're kind of jaded, and they're looking for something to renew their faith in life, basically, and ha having a hard time finding it. Um, so what I really want to do is just read a few, or just give a few kind of citations which might have to do with different types of accelerationism. I mean, one is, um, I actually think that accelerationism in general is very much a Marxist idea or and a correct Marxist idea. I mean, I, I feel weird talking about Marx here in a place where he used to be the ruling ideology, which is enough to destroy any the credibility of anybody. Um, but besides, it's not the same passage can hear, in the critique of, contribution to the critique of political economy, Marx writes, at a certain stage of development, the material productive forces of society come into conflict with the existing relations of production. Or, this merely expresses the same thing in legal terms, with the property relations within the framework of which these have operated hitherto. From forms of development of the productive forces, these relations turn into their fetters. Then begins an era of social revolution. Now, I kind of think that this is an exactly correct analysis of our current situation, except that then begins an era of social revolution is way too optimistic, and I don't really see any signs of it. But, I mean, we I just was reading an article online. It was an article in Vice magazine, not the most reputable source, but citing an article in The Economist, which in turn cited a, a research paper published at Oxford in 2013, basically that we're reading at the beginning of a whole cascade of automation. Okay, so... 
Um, what it said was that it's the 1% will just get wealthier as 49% of all jobs are eliminated in the next 10 or 15 years. And, you know, I think there's a lot of truth to this. Um, the relate, and this is what Marx means, I think, by the, by the forces of production and the relations of production. The forces of production are, in fact, that we now have the technological conditions for everybody to live a life of leisure. But the relations of production or the legal relations are that all this wealth just gets more and more and more accumulated, not even by the 1%, by the, but by the one-tenth of 1%. And everybody else, instead of living a life of leisure, suffers from unemployment because they have no access to any of the abundant resources that actually exist. So, I mean, this is a contradiction, and I think accelerationism has to do with, like, trying to put a wedge into where those contradictions exist. Again, this relates to what Alex said, that it doesn't seem that things die of their own contradictions. It seems that capitalism is great at using its contradictions to reinvigorate itself. It doesn't seem to me to be either in the U.S., which I'm more familiar with, or elsewhere in the world, a kind of revolutionary situation because of people's anger about this, even though everybody's kind of aware that it's happening. Um, so if an acceleration project is sort of taking the tendencies that actually capitalism is actually producing and trying to um, make a wedge to, I mean, I don't really see much of a, the, my problem with what Alex and, and Nick's manifesto is that I don't really see that they have any more of a successful, a potentially successful strategy than all the people they rightly criticize for not having such a strategy. I certainly don't have any either. Um, but it seems to me that acceleration is right to the point that you need to draw, that's the wedge which everything has to come out of, however you treat it. Now, in terms of how to treat it, I really think there are other ways. I'm somewhat convinced by the arguments of Benjamin Noyes, the great enemy of accelerationism, that as a political strategy, it's too easy to turn into just, oh, if things become really, really bad, then everybody's going to rebel, which has been tried several times in the 20th century and never worked. Um, you know, so... So what I tend to do is retreat from that and instead think of accelerationism as as an aesthetic project. And I actually introduced the term of an aesthetic, accelerationist aesthetics in my book, um, Post-Cinematic Affect, and then expanded upon it in the Eflux article, which Armin mentioned. And basically, there seems to be several ways in which an accelerationist aesthetics might work. One is to just create images of what is possible but foreclosed. I mean, I think mostly in terms of science fiction, because science fiction, I've long argued, is really about potentiality, about seeing conditions of possibility which actually exist, but which don't necessarily, they're not at all preordained to, to come out this way. So one way I think about an accelerationist aesthetics is to actually go back to Oscar Wilde and his wonderful essay from the 1880s, The Soul of Man Under Socialism. Wilde basically asked, argues that capitalism and property are deadening both for the people who don't have it, the poor, and for the people who do have it, the rich, and that being liberated from these concerns over property is the only way to have a, fulfilly, a fulfilled, humane existence. And he imagines also that everybody will, list, will live a life of leisure like he idealized because we'll have machines to do all the grubby work for us instead of essentially having slaves or wage slaves as we do now. Um, so he's, his is a vision of, you know, machines, in fact, yes, taking over all of our jobs, but not impoverishing the most of us, but leaving us able to, to do other stuff, to just sort of enjoy life or to be frivolous or, or whatever. Um, the other science fiction visions, though, are somewhat darker or more negative. Okay, I'm almost done. Um, one, is, one would be just to, I mean, one meaning that acceleration 
aesthetics has for me is just sort of look how horrible things are. And I get, I can't tell you how much pleasure I get from reading scientific novels, which are utterly dystopian and horrific and just sort of take the logic of our actual society and say, well, let's say if we really push this to its limit, what would it be like? And it's pretty, even, even if it doesn't left, lead in absolute, even it's, it's almost worse if it doesn't lead to total extermination of the human race because then people are still around to suffer all these things. An, another more helpful, hopeful one, and I'll end on this, is a short story by the American science, science fiction writer Paul DeFilippo. It's called Phylogenesis. And what he imagines is that the world is devastated by a race of extraterrestrials, which are these gigantic, like, 10 miles long beings who come from star system to star system. They come to the Earth, they ravage everything, they eat everything, they reproduce. When they go back out into interstellar space, human beings discover that they can only survive by genetically altering themselves to become parasites on these mega-organisms. Life isn't viable any other way. And the story really works, even if it wasn't the author's intention, the kind of allegory of neoliberal capitalism. The way he describes how human beings re-engineer themselves fits in very much with ideas about flexibility and, and precariousness and things like that. The humans survive by living in a precarious existence as, in effect, parasites on the body of capital. So where the traditional view is that capital is a parasite on our labor, it's more like the reverse, that we're, we can survive if we can only as parasites on this monstrous body of capital, which is otherwise consuming us in every possible way. And so that's the accelerationist vision I'll leave you with. <laughs>